you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, as we read our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the, dis the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Oh God, as I read this, this, this passage this morning, Father, I, I come with the words of this song, and I must <coughs> proclaim Jesus' thank you as every one of us should. Thank you for the loving hand of a father who deals so appropriately with his rebellious children. Father, this morning, let your text speak to our hearts and draw us ever closer to you. And let us exalt your son, Jesus Christ. And may your spirit move and work in our hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Stop and I think back, what, what have we seen uh, so far in chapter 12? And, 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 I, and I go back to the very beginning because I think it's very important to do so this morning based on what our text is about. When we, when we looked at 12 verses 1 and 2, uh, we saw that practical application uh, that we are called to look and listen to that great cloud of witness that's there. The witness and the testimony that is brought before us from their lives, both in the past with the Old Testament saints right up to the New Testament saints. They are that cloud of witness that we look to and, and, we, and we hear their stories. We see that witness and we hear what we need to do. We see their examples. And we also look at the witness, the great cloud of witness that we have before us this morning and our brothers and sisters in Christ that are sitting with us. We also saw a practical application that in this race that we're, on, that, that we're in, we are to shed everything that weighs us down. No matter what it is, if it's getting in between us and running that race that we're on, that race of faith, then we need to set it aside. Rather yet, we should cast it aside and be done with it. Any sin that, that is plaguing your heart and your life that you struggle with, we're to cast it aside. Because the third point was 
We are running a race. We're in this race. We're engaged to the death in this race. And anything that slows us down, we got to get rid of it. And the way that we do that was the fourth application. We keep looking. We keep our eyes on Christ. In verses 3 and 4, which we talked about last week, or after that was, we are to consider Christ. We're to think about it. We're to ponder. We're, we're, to, we're to wrap our, try and wrap our brains around Christ and Christ in His pre-incarnate condition there in glory before He came to earth. Christ as He came in the flesh and all that He endured while here. And then to cast our eyes and to consider Christ now glorified, seated at the right hand of the Father. We're also to consider Christ because it's for our benefit. So we don't grow weary and we don't go f- grow faint-hearted. We keep going because we have looked at Christ and now we're considering all that He has endured for our salvation. And we move forward. And then lastly, we are to consider the extent of our own struggles. The bottom life is, we have not struggled to the point of anybody in the last 100 years here in America. I would say we haven't struggled in the last 200 years. Like some have struggled. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that are shedding their blood daily in other areas of the world because of their testimony and their witness for Jesus Christ. So we look at some of the things that we think we're struggling, we think we're being persecuted. They don't even come close. It can always be worse than what we have it. And what an awesome and practical application we, we have sunk our teeth into after hearing all that those, of those great stories from the, the Faith Hall of Fame, chapter 11. We saw how to run the race, how to keep our eyes on Jesus, how to consider Jesus. All that we know of Jesus, all that we uh, uh, can wrap our brains around, that will keep us persevering and enduring to the very end. And how much the readers in the original times needed to hear this message. How desperately they needed to hear what the author is telling them here. Look back in your, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And we see the reason why they needed to hear this so desperately. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32 it says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So we see that they had already endured these hard struggles. struggles. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. It was bad for them at that time. And we know, looking back now, that it was going to get a lot worse. The persecutions, the trials, the tribulations, they were likely to intensify beyond anything that they could believe in. In fact, they would because as we look down in verses 35 and 36, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Why did they need endurance? He says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It was going to get worse. 
Chances are it could get worse for us too. And it's here that he reminds them in our text today of the discipline of the Lord or the chastening that comes from the Lord. He uses a a passage that they would be familiar with back in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And and now he elaborates on it more so uh, that they might begin to look at their own circumstances, their own situations from this divine perspective. Now, now the Greek word that is used here, uh, in the ESV, it's discipline, or in the King James, it says chasten or chastening. It's a Greek word that's pahidia. And there is no equivalent English word for it. And one definition is to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits or behavior, or of providing guidance for responsible living, of rearing and guiding a child towards maturity. It is a broad uh, term, signifying whatever parents and teachers do to, to train, correct, cultivate, and educate children in order to help them develop maturely as they ought. Now, I think sometimes when we see that word discipline or chastening, we start thinking, ooh, that's bad. That's a bad thing. But you know what? It's it's not like that with our Heavenly Father. And and I don't know about you, but as I read through uh, that beginning part of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, uh, I read it. But at first, it seemed kind of out of place. This, this portion that follows. It, it didn't seem like it was in the right place. It seemed kind of weird when compared with to, to what the author had previously been addressing. And he's talking about running the race and confidence and going and looking to Jesus. And now all of a sudden he's, he's got his eyes on this, this whole thing about God's discipline in our lives. Why, why would he now start talking about fathers disciplining sons? Uh, and what he's doing here really is he's introducing another analogy to us first it was a runner second we see that it was someone who was engaged in combat when he talks about you haven't struggled yet to the shedding of your blood so we're dealing with a runner we're dealing with combat and now he goes to the analogy of child rearing and why would he do that because the race isn't over the finish line still lay ahead. The reward was yet to be claimed. The imperishable wreath was not yet placed on the heads of the winners. There was still a battle to be fought. Spiritual wars were raging in their lives. Persecutions were still to come. Severe. A raging against them to the point of death. And they would be tempted to abandon their faith. Or at least to have an incorrect view, an ungodly view as to why these things were happening in their lives. And see, this wasn't new to these people either. This isn't a, an unheard of portion uh, or, or, or an unheard of idea that we find in Scripture. Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Proverbs. And our author here, 
Uh, he's already used Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11 and 12. So stop there very briefly. Proverbs chapter 3. And look at what it says in 11 and 12, because this is in our text this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So there's part of our text for this morning. But wait a second. Go over to chapter 12. And it would do you good to remember who wrote Proverbs. Solomon. Consider the wisest man. Proverbs chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. Wow. Ouch. Chapter 13, verse 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Turn over to chapter 15 and verse 5. A fool despises his father's instructions, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Look in verse, 5, uh, verse 10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever, whoever hates reproof will die. The case is getting stronger. The discipline and correction in the Christian's life, it's there. It's biblical. Look in Jeremiah. Turn over about three, four books to Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 30. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. Go over a couple more to Habakkuk. Right after Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea. After Joel. After Amos. After Obadiah. Right after Nahum. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Here's that whole idea of the Lord disciplining his children. In Zephaniah, one book over, chapter 3, verse 2. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Now, I got to tell you, there was only one struggle uh, that I had really in, in today's message. I don't have enough time. Because really, I could take chapters, or this, this portion, chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, and I could probably preach for a year just on the, cha the chastening hand of the Lord. There's just that much in it. I'm just going to let you know right now that there are probably some things that people are going to think of that, that I don't have in there that I've left out. I, I just trusted the Lord. Lord, give me what you want them to hear this morning. Because we could go on and on and on when we talk about the chastening of the children of God. 
And today we're just going to, we're not going to take a comprehensive look. We're going to, we're just going to take a brief look at the chastening hand of God in the lives of his children. And, and I want to look at three things. Uh, I want us to look at the chastening of God's children and the fact that it will come. God will bring chastening into your life. The next thing is the means that he brings chasing in, into our lives, how he does it. And then lastly, why does he bring chastening to the children? And then we're going to look at some practical application uh, from our text. But as we begin, I want to give you a, a quote from Edgar Andrews. He says, affliction may take many forms and come through many agencies, but it is masterminded by God for the, eventual, for the eventual good of his children. Needless to say, when Christians embrace this perspective, it transforms their outlook on the problems and hardships in life. So the first thing we look at is the chasing of God's children will come. Some people uh, would, like you, would like to have you believe that God does not chasten his people. God doesn't, God doesn't discipline his, 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 his children anymore because God is a, uh, a God of true grace and mercy and love. And he, would, and he, would let his, he, he wouldn't let his children suffer for one minute. God doesn't do that kind of stuff. And if there is suffering, and if there is tribulation, if there is persecution and trials, it's all the fault of Satan and the hordes of hell. They're the ones who've caused all this. They take some of the stories from Scripture, and they point out and they say, see, Satan did it. We see it in Job. Oh, Satan's the one who did that. Oh, Joseph went to, went to prison. His brothers hated him. His brothers are responsible for that. Abel, he got busted in the head or stabbed with a knife. Whatever, however it happened, his brother killed him. Oh, it was Satan. And I've told you all this before. It reminds me of going back to the 60s, late 60s. And, and uh, Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson as Geraldine. The devil made me do it. I used to love Flip Wilson. And that's what people do with, with persecutions. It's all Satan. It's all Satan doing this. All Satan, the tribulation. All Satan because of is, is the tribulations and, and trials and all that. But if we take just a second, look back in Job, and see what it tells us right there at the very beginning as all this starts to unfold in Job's life. Job chapter 1 and verse 12. What does it tell us? And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Do you see that? God gave the nod. Look over in chapter 2, verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. God gives that nod again for those trials and tribulations in his life. But wait a second. Go back to go all the way to the end of the story of Job, chapter 42. 
And just so we're not confused about anything, I want you to think about this. Listen to what the people said about Job. Job chapter 42 and verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Man, that don't sit right with me sometimes. Does it sit right with you? The Lord was the one that was responsible for his trials, for his tribulations, for him losing everything he owned, for being stricken in his body from head to toe with these boils. It said that the Lord was the one who had brought that upon him. See, God will bring chastening into his, into his children's lives. That is a fact. And who are we to argue? Who are we to argue with the living God when, when He brings chastening, when He brings discipline, when He brings trials and, and tribulations into our lives? We, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8, He says, But now, O Lord, You are our Father, we are the clay, and You are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. God does what He wants to with us. We turn over to, to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says something very similar in chapter 18 and verse 4. Jeremiah 18.4 And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do so. Wait a second. Let's go over to Romans chapter 9 and verse 21. If you ever want to have your world rocked, read Romans 8 and 9. Romans 9 verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who am I to question when God brings trials and tribulations into my life, when He brings His chastening hand upon me, when He disciplines me? God is God and I am not. He is sovereign over all of His creation, every creature. And we looked at several verses earlier uh, that the readers uh, of the letter would have been familiar with when, it, when he talks about the chastening of the Lord. And just going back, that one, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, that's exactly what it says. It was no secret. God seemingly chastened the nation of Israel at every turn, and justifiably so. They were, they were a disobedient, rebellious bunch of folks. They constantly had God's, heads, God's hand of chastening upon them. We look back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 5, and we, and we see what Moses said to them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 5, he says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So it shouldn't surprise us when discipline and chastening come in our lives. 
Pretty straightforward, if you ask me. God will discipline. God will chasten His children. And just so you remember, one of those definitions there of that word chasing is instruction. But we live, we live in the New Testament era. The God of the Old Testament, He doesn't deal with people like that anymore. He doesn't deal the same way now. He's a God of love and a God of mercy and grace and kindness. Remember that. He doesn't deal with His children like that. That is not true though. God is immutable. God is unchanging. And if He is mutable, if He is unchanging, then guess what? So is his word. And when his word says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, that he will discipline his children, guess what? He's going to discipline his children. He will deal with his children in the same way then as he does now. Well, can you show that from the New Testament where everything is about love and grace and mercy and all that? Okay, if, you, if, if we need to, let's go ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 32 and 33. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. All talking about the Lord's Supper there. Discipline would come because people were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate and ungodly manner. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 19. Look at what he says there. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. If God dealt so with some of the greatest men and women in the Bible... It should serve as a proof to us that God's chastening hand will come upon us also. It will be a fact. And it's not if He will bring chastening into your life or discipline into your life. It's when. And remember, keep this in your mind. I want you to keep thinking. Chastening and discipline means instruction. And I don't know about you, but to me, that is encouraging though. It may not be pleasant, but it's encouraging. And you're going, you have lost your mind finally, Pastor, to say that you are encouraged by God's chastening, by God's discipline. See, if, if we knew not the discipline, if we didn't know the chastisement uh, was coming, man, what happens? It is terrible. It's a horrifying surprise for you. You're, you're just taken back by it. All of a sudden, it's like you're being crushed under the weight of despondency and despair because you weren't expecting this horrible thing to happen. Your faith would, would near faint under the weight of those severe trials and persecutions. You would even be tempted in some cases to abandon the cause of Christ and to look for greener pasture or to sail smoother seas. That's what happens when, when we have this 
you know, pie in the sky kind of idea that everything's good as Christians and nothing ever goes wrong after you accept Christ. People, there's something wrong with that kind of theology. He says we will find times of chastening and discipline in our lives. And if we're not expecting it, it knocks us off our feet. But now, y'all know. Y'all know it this morning. And because you know discipline will come, it's not, it shouldn't blindside you. It, it, it shouldn't throw you for a loop. It shouldn't make you despondent and find yourself in despair. And because you know those things are coming, you will be ready for it. You're going to own it when it takes place. And God will be glorified as you grow through it and draw nearer to Christ in His sufferings. Next thing I want to look at is the means involved in the chastening of God's children. How does He do it? When any type of discipline is involved, the first thing we want to know after finding out that discipline is coming is how will I be disciplined? What means is going to be employed in my disciplining? And I want you to think back to when you were a child. And everybody's already squirming in their seat going, yeah, I know about that, man. Think about it. What was the offense that was committed? Ah, at that time, I took four cookies out of the cookie jar, and as I stuffed them in my pocket, man, mom came around the corner, she saw me do it. I'm guilty. What was the severity to it? Well... I didn't steal something from the store. It wasn't that bad. But there's still the penalty. Well, I didn't get any cookies for a whole week. You see what I'm saying? That, that's how we think of this idea of disciplining. There's the offense, and then there's the severity, and then there's the penalty that goes with it. And we think about that in the same way as most of us having been parents. The same exact thing. What was the offense the child committed? Well... He set a dumpster on fire behind the grocery tour. <laughs> behind the grocery tour. Oh, that's pretty bad, okay. That's pretty severe. What's the penalty? It's up to mom and dad. It goes like that for work, for school, for church, as citizens. We are disciplined. A lot of times in, in most of those areas. If you ain't ever been disciplined at work, I'll give you a job here with me. Because you're a saint. School, we don't, we're not even going to ask our young people about discipline at school. Church, we don't do enough church discipline. Citizens, well, I got you on that one. Citizens and discipline. Let's think about that. As a law enforcement officer, there were many times I could choose the discipline that was to be involved. And it may have looked like this. You're going to jail. Boom, there it is. And we would look at that and say, well, that's a retributive type discipline. That's severe. There is a, a penalty and it's severe and boom, we're employing it. But then we have something called corrective discipline. Okay, here you go. 75 and a 60. $100 fine, take it, pay it, go to, go to driving school, whatever you got to do. Then there's that instructional type of discipline that I could give. Listen, buddy, slow down. 
this or that could happen and I don't want to see that happen to you. Ma'am, put the kid in a car seat. Kid could lose its life if you just slam on the brakes. Put your child in the car seat, please. Instructional. And then there's the preventative. Don't let it happen again because if it does, A, B, and C, and D are all going to take place on you. That's the preventative side of it. I can't tell you, I only wrote tickets the, the, really for the whole time I was at the sheriff's office. Pass on a double line, you're getting a ticket. We, we ain't even going to talk about it. You're getting a ticket. Pass a school bus. When the sign's up, I want to take you to jail. But you're, only, but you're just going to get that ticket. Speeding, I just gave them warnings. Going around railroad tracks when the, when the arms are down, you're getting a ticket. Run a red light, ticket. Stop sign, ticket. Other things, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to instruct you on this. I'm going to give you some, some preventative thoughts to keep you from doing that. Some people just went to jail. And I know this is a, a very simple way of looking at it and, and what we're talking about as far as, as God's disciplining us is much more weighty, but, but it gets you thinking about the seriousness of what can take place in discipline. And, and I think we see those same four means of disciplines used by our Heavenly Father with His children. So let's think about it. What does retributive discipline look like? And I don't really like the word in this context. I think I just I couldn't find a different way to do it. But King David, and y'all know what King David did. Not only did he commit adultery, but he murdered when he sent the woman's husband out to battle and pulled his other truth back so he would be killed. David was a, had a grievous sin, uh, an open wickedness. He, he had grown self-confident. He had grown self-righteous. Read 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22 and 23. We see it. That's a, and God stepped on David. God dis gave out some retributive discipline. There was a consequence. He paid the penalty for that. We also see a corrective discipline in Job. Job was a good man. And everybody reads the story of Job and they often go, man, that poor guy, he didn't do anything wrong. As we read through the narrative of what's happening, Job was a good man and he knew it. Maybe he, maybe he thought a little bit too much of himself and, and not enough of God. A little bit of self-satisfaction, a little bit of self-righteousness. And God corrected him. And we see that. In chapters 38 through 42 of Job, we see instructional discipline. We see that with Abraham. He came upon trials so that God would strengthen him and give him the perfect patience that he was going to need. Why? We re you remember what we talked about when it came to Abraham being a man of faith? You remember the patience he had to have? He only saw one of the promises that was made to him fulfilled in his whole life. God wanted, to, God wanted to take the desires of the world and he wanted to wean them from, from Abraham's life. He was the friend of God. Because of it, he walked with God. He walked closely with God. And it was because of that instructional instruction, that discipline that he gave to him. And then we see lastly, a preventative discipline. Paul. Remember what Paul said? I've got this thorn in my flesh. And I prayed, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul was kept humble. 
And I think it was probably because Paul, like some of us, we have the propensity to become prideful and arrogant. And God kept him humble. And God would see to it that Paul made Christ his all-sufficiency in his life. And here's the thing, though. Look at what our text tells us not to do. In the, in, in the periods of chastisement, in those periods of discipline from God's hand, he says, do not regard it lightly. But I think the force behind uh, the King James when it says, do not despise is more appropriate. Meaning, don't just kind of go, eh. don't esteem it, at, you know, have little esteem for it. Don't have this attitude, well, there's not a whole lot of value to it. And how do we do this? Well, we harden our hearts. When we're under the chastening hand of God, our hearts become hardened because we develop this kind of attitude. Listen, I'm going to make the best of a bad situation. It is what it is. I'll get through this somehow. That's a hard heart. That's, that, that's a heart that's putting all the focus back on you saying somehow I'll do this. I'll get through this. The big way, the thing that all of us do, we're a bunch of complainers. When God puts his chastening hand upon you and he begins to discipline you, man, let the grumbling start. Let the murmuring commence. Listen to the whining. Listen to the complaining. What, what have I done to deserve this? Why is this affliction on, upon me? Oh, why? Oh, why? I'm a good person. We begin complaining. And if, that, and if that doesn't get us, what do we start doing? We start criticizing. How can this help me? How can these circumstances even remotely help me in the situation that I'm in now? I can't see what good this will do that God is making me walk through this or doing this in my life. This isn't fair. Sometimes we just become negligent. It's just negligence. It doesn't... It fails to make any change in our lives. We don't mend our ways. We don't stop and think about it and become obedient and faithful. We don't learn the lesson. And that, when we do those things during and after God's disciplining, we have despised it. We have regarded it lightly. Now we're going to move on to the last point and put some things, and then after that, we're going to put some things together. The last one is why? Why does God chasten his children? Listen, God doesn't delight. God doesn't find joy in disciplining us or chastening us. He didn't find joy. He didn't find delight when he did it to Israel or any of the other bunch of the, of the saints that he had to discipline throughout time. It wasn't something that he wanted to do. It is always for our good. Look in our text in verse 9. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9. Look at what it says there. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? He's doing it for our own good. Our fathers did it to us. Sometimes they did it the wrong way. Sometimes they didn't follow the, the godly, Christ-like example of discipline, but they still disciplined us. 
And hopefully we respected them for it when it was done appropriately. We appreciated and we saw the good that they were trying to accomplish in our lives. And listen, God will do the same with us. And we are to submit to God during those times. With our Heavenly Father, it's more precious, though, because verse 10 tells us He is doing it so that we may share His holiness. And verse 11 shows us the result of it in that we bear peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I admit, maybe for most folks, the, short, uh, the short-term experience, it's unpleasant. We don't like it. But the, but the long-term, how blessed we are. That our Father gave us that instruction and gave us that training. I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to... I believe it's important for us to be really transparent. I'm going to share with you uh, my own personal experience of God's chastisement. His chastening hand upon my life. And I want to start out with a quote from A.W. Pink. He says, here then is a, the Christian supplied with an effectual shield to turn aside, every fire, turn aside the fiery darts of the wicked one. As we said at the beginning, Satan ever seeks to take advantage of our trials like the fiend that he is. He makes his fiercest assaults when we are the most cast down. Thus it was that he attacked Job, curse God and die. And thus some of us have found it. Did he not in the hour of suffering and sorrow seek to remind you that when you had become increasingly diligent in seeking to please and glorify God, the darkest clouds of adversity followed? And he say, how unjust God is. What a miserable reward for your devotion and zeal. Here is your recourse, fellow Christian. Say to the devil, it is written, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Again, if Satan cannot succeed in traducing the character of God and cause us to doubt his goodness and question his love, then he will assail our assurance. The devil is most persevering if the frontal attack falls. Then he will make one from the rear. He will assault your assurance of sonship. He will whisper, you are no child of his. Look at your condition. Consider your circumstances. Contrast those with other Christians. You cannot be an object of God's favor. You are deceiving yourself. Your profession is an empty one. If you were God's child, he would treat you very differently. Such privations, such losses, such pains show that you cannot be his. But say to him, it is written, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. I'm going to read to you a couple things. Because God chastened me. You all know this, the health concerns I had back at the beginning of the year. And it wasn't until I read this in Pink's commentary. And you can see this is a copy, but right there, there's, you can see where I wrote. I put this is exactly what Satan did to me in the hospital. An attack from the rear. I never saw it coming. He finally found the weakest spot and wreaked havoc. I'm just like all of you. The calling's just a little bit different in my life. Listen to what some of these things that I wrote right after those circumstances. As I'm recovering on my own and then all this cardiac stuff Add to that losing 30 pounds and thinking I was dying. 
I was by myself alone and in my mind I was fighting for my life and I was alone that morning in the hospital. A good portion of the month of November in 2019 I fed myself with my own tears. I drank of all their bitterness and pain and thus the enemy who has been skulking about uh, who has been skulking about me for years found an unlocked door and walked in unchallenged. He walked in at first there in the hospital that morning and he whispered, where's your wife? You're all alone. Then he whispered, where are the kids? They're grown and they're gone. Where is your church? None of them are here. Then in that minute or two of horror as I felt my pilgrimage was coming to an end here, he then just stated so matter-of-factly, where is your God? And oh, how I wished I would have remembered Isaiah 42, 2 and 3. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I wish in that moment I could have remembered all the good, all of God's goodness, all his blessings on my life, all his promises fulfilled in my life, all the beautiful places I've seen and the things I've done in this life. I have failed to remember the psalmist remembered the things of God in his distress and his panting and thirsting after God and his great longing to go and appear before him. And to my shame as his child, I did not. I wrote later on, so why is my soul downcast? Why is there this turmoil inside me? And the word turmoil is really a good word to describe my inner being. Anxiety, unrest, agitation, confusion, upheaval. It is an issue that is greatly influencing my soul. What is it that, has, that my soul has downcast and in this state of turmoil? It is the feeling of being alone, of my own mortality. All that took place that morning in November in that hospital room. And it appears I did not step back and remember that my hope is in God. I wonder what happened to my hope in God. In times of turmoil and distress, is that not what we are supposed to cling to? Even in my distress and turmoil, I could not praise Him. In death, that should be the moment we praise Him the most. We praise Him because our salvation is most secure in Him. And it is in Him because, and it is in Him because he alone is God. I have been all over the world and remembered him in divers places, on mountaintops and in dens of devils. And yet I seem to have forgotten him and his promises here at home and in the hospital room. I forgot how to praise. I forgot how to hope in him. Oh, how true it is that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The months of October, November, and December, the most... and, and and most of December has been a time of being in the deep swells of distress and billowing peaks of turmoil. The waves, the breakers, repeatedly crashing over me and nearly drowning me. The despair of being alone laying hold of me. The fear of dying in the hospital where the waves that almost crushed me. The deepest of swells that drew me down and I heard nothing else. The great darkness and horror fell upon me so that I could not see before me. I saw not his steadfast love, nor heard his song. Oh, how ashamed and humiliated I find myself now. I thought I was well prepared for those battles with loneliness and death, but I was stripped of my armor, and I lay down my sword in fear. Oh, Lord, train my hands for those battles. Y'all know what God was doing right then? 
He was chastening me. He was disciplining me. And I, and I saw it finally as I was reading through Pink's commentary. More importantly, I felt it. I finally got it. God had been chasing me, resulting in growth, real growth in my heart and in my life. And God gave me three of those corrective actions in my life. He, he gave me the corrective one. He gave me the instructional one. He gave me the preventative one all at one time. But I struggled at first. If you, if you listen to what I was saying, I struggled. I had my heart hardened. I was complaining. I, I criticized God. I despised the chasing of God. He had to do that in my life. And I'm glad today that he did it. And I don't know where you're at. And some of y'all have been chasing in ways I can't even begin to imagine. I can't wrap my brain around some of the things that some of y'all have been through. But it was God's chastening hand, his hand of instruction and discipline in your life. And I don't know, and you know what, sometimes I, can't, I don't even have the answers as a pastor. And like I said, there's so much, just, I, don't, I just don't even know where to begin or to end on some of this. But the first thing that we think of, though, is, is back to that question of why. Trials can be severe. They can be horrifying. They're the stuff of nightmares. And how can we even remotely say, God's hand is in it. God's hand did it for your, for your, for your own good, for his glory. How do we even begin to wrap our brain around that? And there were a couple thoughts that, that, that came, into my, came into my mind. The first thing is, when God's chastening hand comes upon us, it, they flow from the fountainhead of God's love for us. And I, I don't get that on most days. How can this be God's love that these things have taken place? I can't wrap my brain around it. I just want to lash out in anger. But God doesn't do these things because he's angry with us. It's not just on some, some divine whim, whim that he decides he's going to discipline us. And I cannot grasp what true love is most of the time. And I have to look to Christ when it comes to this fact that God in his love disciplines and chastens us. And they show me God's love. Not so funny a way to of showing it though, right? God says no sometimes to some things. He withholds things that we think may benefit us, but He knows it will not bring us where He wants us to be. My chastening sometimes, your disciplining sometimes, that magnify the love of God for us. We see how much God loves us in His discipline. And earlier we talked about how we're not to respond uh, in times of discipline, in times of chastisement. So now we seek to know the answer. Well, how do I respond in these times of, of chastisement? Probably the first thing that we should do is we need to do a little heart searching. We need to do a little self-examination. And it's okay sometimes to question the why in that, in that case. Why, am I, why, why is this happening? 
Why am I being disciplined? Am I, am I being disciplined retributively because of my just gross and wicked sin? Is God correcting me on something in my heart that I have astray? A, a is it instructional for me? Is he teaching me something particular? Is it preventative to keep me from a certain sin? So we need to go back and kind of wonder, okay, what is God doing in my life? We're to endure it prayerfully. Oftentimes, and you know what? We see it in the church all the time. People hit trials and tribulations. They start struggling in their marriage. Kids start acting up and being bad and, and going to jail and stupid stuff. Work gets bad. What's the first thing they do? They stop coming to church. I just, I couldn't come to church. I was just so, I'm just so broken over the blah, 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 blah. And I just, I couldn't be there. They stop praying. When chastisement comes, when discipline comes, you better get in prayer. You better seek your heavenly father. You better seek the answers because you know what? When the chastisement comes and it's corrective or instructional, what happens as soon as we learn the lesson? It goes its way and we grow. We also need to learn to endure the chastisement humbly, not arrogantly. We need to be patient in our tribulations. We need to learn to don't faint, stay the course, persevere to the end. We need to, we need to believe during those times of persecution. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job said. We need to keep hoping in the living God. We need to be thankful. That one hurts. How do I be thankful? How do I be thankful when he's taken the life of a loved one? How do I get on my knees and say, Oh God, thank you for, for taking this person from me. Oh God, thank you for letting my marriage collapse. Oh God, thank you for having me fired from the job. Oh God, thank you. for How, how do we even begin to be thankful? You know what? I don't know the answer sometimes, but what I do know is I'm, the, I'm called to give thanks all the time. <clears throat> no matter what the circumstances are, oh God, thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy, Father. And you know what? Our text is just so beautiful. It, it just lays it out for us so, so beautifully. We look there in verses five through six, and what do we see? We see God's training of his children. Have you forgotten? He scolds them. Did you forget? Did you forget the exhortation? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We're in, the, we're in this for training. We're going to be trained until we go to glory. And even then, we're going, to be, we're going to keep learning. He's going to keep instructing us. But yet, we see God's testing of His children in verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the, His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children. then you are illegitimate children and not sons. A good way to kind of figure out if you're saved is, is your father chastening you? 
Is he, is he daily disciplining you and instructing you? And the wording, they changed it here in the ESV. He says if you're, if you're not finding yourself being disciplined, you're a bastard child. Ouch. You don't even belong in the family. And then we see verses 9 and 10. God's children under a subjection. If I could tell you one thing today, you better place yourself under the subjection of the living God. It makes things a whole lot easier sometimes. When you submit to His authority, when you submit to the Lordship of Christ. And then lastly, in verse 11, God's children bear fruit. It says right there in our text, it, uh, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All of us, we find ourselves under that, that disciplining of God. We comply with God's will. We find ourselves in subjection to Him. And that we rid ourselves of sin and our hearts and souls are, are filled with a peace and a joy. We have a confidence that our chastisements will bring reward and blessing. We could go on and on and on like the ever-ready bunny. That's how deep this is. But this morning, I just want to make sure that you understand that chasing is going to come. It's a fact. And sometimes it comes in ways that we don't particularly want. And it's all to the glory of God. You know, I can say it now with more confidence than I did a year ago. But whatever he throws my way, okay. So be it. And I pray every day, Lord, because I, I still have a funny heartbeat every now and then. And I pray every day, Lord, the next time it happens, when it happens that last time, Father, let me shine like a star in the heavens for you. Let your chastisement and your discipline be upon me to the point that I glorify you even in the darkest of days for your honor and glory. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me sometimes, but it's everything about the living God and Him receiving glory in my discipline and in, in my times of chastening upon me. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you do your will this morning, that you might be glorified. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We ask in Christ's name.